If no one sheds light on what is being done in the darkness, it will never stop. One in three girls and one in six boys are sexually abused and told to hush. Breaking the silence is the first step to healing. Healing is a lifelong journey. Find your voice. Your story matters. Pain put me into hiding. Purpose called me out. May the silence be broken. Thanks for listening to the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien and now Nicole Braddock Bromley. Wow, really excited to be back with you. We have a really cool guest with us today. Her name is Dr. Ashley Patterson, and Ashley serves as a professor at Penn State College of Education and is the co-coordinator for the newly established social justice and education minor at Penn State, which... Ashley can tell us a little bit more about that, but from what I've read, just immerses students in Washington, D.C. public schools to learn about social justice issues at hand. And for all of you who have been listening to the One Voice podcast, you know how important social justice is to me and just to the nonprofit that Mary and I run together called One Voice for Freedom to stop child sex trafficking, but also just dealing with lots of social justice issues. And so anyways, welcome, Ashley. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. (laughs) Awesome. Well, I loved reading about just your research interests and especially um, the intersections between identity and education and Mm -hmm. just how, you know, the ways that we think about ourselves really do impact our education and the experiences we have. At the same time, our educational experiences impact the ways we think about ourselves. And I think that's, that's so true. And it's something like no one really thinks about or talks about. I think, oh, I think about it a lot. <laughs> I bet you do. <laughs> but I absolutely, I think once it's one of those things, once you scratch the surface a little bit, you realize a lot of people, maybe they're not talking about it in the same way that I am or spending as much time thinking about it, but it's never anything that people are like, really? I'm not so sure about that. Mm. There, People are always like, tell me more. I, I haven't, yeah. I haven't thought about it so deeply. Do you have some examples? Which is, um, I never wanted to be the type of professor who's just, you know, in their lab all day or living in the in the ivory tower. I wanted to do work that that speaks to people. So that that's comforting to know that people connect with it on that level. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, a lot of times, even just, you know, as a young college kid, you just think your experiences are going to be just like anybody else's. Mm-hmm. I think, honestly, and, and frankly, from like a white person's perspective, you really think that until yeah. you become, you're in relationship with people from other cultures, from other nations, with other skin colors, with other backgrounds, parents that look different than you, you know, it's, it, it does impact your experience. And in turn, Absolutely. your experience impacts how you think about yourself. And I think that's how we grow. Yeah, for sure. I, I, as a black woman, I grew up in um, mostly suburban school districts. My, mm-hmm. my parents um, both came from, from a little bit more humbler means than I did growing up than they, than they were able to give me growing up. And one mm-hmm. thing that they always wanted was for us to be in good schools. And in the United States, often good schools translate to predominantly white schools. Mm-hmm. So that's where I went. And I, um, 
I was the one or one of maybe maximum three black mm-hmm. kids in any of my elementary schools. I never had a black teacher in wow. elementary school. Um, I was one of the only students who were in honors or advanced classes in my high school. And so I didn't have the choice but to think about how like my home culture was different from my school culture and stuff. And I, um, I was able to, to merge the two and, and one wasn't, it wasn't like I had to overcome one or the other per se, but I, I naturally had an understanding that not everybody here is having the same experience, Hmm. but that is something that I, part of what I, um, the coursework I teach is for teachers who want to teach pre-K to fourth grade um, in Pennsylvania. So we, most of my students, um, almost exclusively, I would say, are white females, most of whom are are from middle-class backgrounds. For instance, last semester I had, in a a class of 24, I had two students who were not female. So that is, and that's very typical. And we have to do a lot of talking about how the things that that a lot of my students um, understand as quote unquote normal Mm -hmm. or typical are actually just their experiences. When we're, when I'm inviting them to do things, I think about how they would uh, how they would make sure that a student who didn't speak English at home, whose parents didn't speak English at home, could feel welcomed and loved and included in their classroom. Some of the pushback I get is like, but why? Why are we even talking about that? I'm not going to have students in my class who don't speak English. So like, what did that educational experience tell you about yourself then? You know, obviously this is where your passion comes for educational yeah. equity and social justice. So that makes sense. But I'm, I'm wondering what did that upbringing tell you about yourself? So I actually was asked to, to write about this recently for, um, for something I was applying for. And the way that I described it there is I, I never, there, there, there definitely are um, young black girls in spe- specifically who sometimes aspire to be white, who don't, don't feel like they're beautiful, who, mm-hmm. um, who would prefer to have lighter skin, lighter eyes, lighter hair, mm-hmm. a thinner nose. And that was never my experience. Um, and I'm, but I, I know that that's a fortunate situation. I, I have, um, I have fam- young family members. We actually, I think my cousin Shiva was telling you about um, her niece who just put on a, um, a social justice um, yeah. forum in, yeah. in Ohio yeah. and her little sister got up to speak and she's, she's nine years old and it, it breaks my heart. But uh-huh. she said to the crowd that mm-hmm. she was on a journey of loving herself, learning to love herself again, because she wasn't loving her black skin mm-hmm. and to be nine years old and have that something that you're, you're wrestling with. And mm-hmm. I know that is not a unique story across the country. No, so I feel no. very fortunate that I, that I had a mom who was very intentional about, mm-hmm. um, about instilling me to, to love myself in, in the package that I came in. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I certainly did understand that excellence in school is a white thing. 
Mm. So even though I didn't want to be white, I wanted to do white. I, I wanted my teachers when they looked at me and, um, and looked at my papers and were giving me feedback, I wanted them to think that I was just as good or better than the white kids in particular. And I didn't even realize that was um, kind of a coping strategy that I had, that I had built within myself until much later, like graduate school later. Mm. But I also remembered and it's interesting how these memories, and I, I'm sure with 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 y'all's discussions about traumas and things, just the the wonderful world of the mind, yeah. <laughs> and how how protective your mind can be of your body by mm-hmm. um, managing memory sure. and things. You know, so I was just um, I think it was actually I can't remember it was last semester or the semester before, but I was um, talking with my students about inclusivity as is always what I'm talking about. And I, the memory just came flooding to me that I I hadn't thought of in years about how um, when I would be doing those innocuous um, worksheets, you remember those word problems, math word problems, worksheets Mm -hmm. and stuff. I remembered all of a sudden that whenever I was doing my worksheets, I would always start with any word problems that sounded like they had a person of color in it. Hmm. And they would randomly throw in like wands or Jose all the time Hmm. or like a a Latoya. And I would always do those word problems first. And I had never thought about that. I had never grappled with that, but I think it's significant. The fact Hmm. that that was in oftentimes the only time that I had a chance to see myself in my curricular materials is, is makes me want to do better. Wow. Yeah. And that's something obviously not other kids are thinking about. No, (laughs) you know, and they don't have to. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and it reminds me of actually a conversation I had with, you mentioned your cousin Shiva. Mm -hmm. Shiva is a a good friend and a neighbor of mine. And honestly, she's one of the nicest, (laughs) most welcoming people I've ever met in my whole life. She's so nice. Like, how does a person get to be that nice? I don't know. But she is. So (laughs) she is your cousin. And during the height of the Black Lives Matter protests in response to George Floyd's murder, she left me a voicemail inviting us, our family, my three boys, um, in to listen to their family's story Mm -hmm. and to hear from their mouths what this means to them, what this feels like, and just to help us become stronger allies. And, you know, these aren't conversations that she and I have gone deep in at all. Like Mm -hmm. we are new neighbors. And I just thought that is so brave and so bold. Um, You know, she mentioned how our three, our three white boys, they're three brown boys, you know, will be growing up together. And it's Mm -hmm. true. And it's important for our boys to understand what comes with being a black male in our culture and to be growing up with friends that, you know, are black, Mm -hmm. to understand the systems that are in place that are keeping people at the bottom and others at the top. And I just, I was so amazed at that because it, like you're saying, you know, you're growing up with this experience and thinking about simple math problems in a way that other white kids aren't 
even thinking about in the same way. My kids are growing up thinking about things so much differently than her kids are, but the importance of bringing those children together and to Mm -hmm. be able to have those conversations. I, I just really admired her for that. And I, I love her for that. And I'm inspired by that. And, and also by your story, I think, um, that it's these conversations that we're having, that's going to help, help us all be better. (laughs) You know, I I think so. I think it starts with understanding. It starts with making human to human connections Mm -hmm. and they're, they're, they're hard conversations, but they're, they're not that hard. There are other things that are more true. hard. <laughs> yes, it's true. Yeah, a lot of our listeners you had mentioned are, are survivors of sexual trauma. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're proactive in empowering our kids, educating them on, on issues of abuse, on grooming, um, body safety, mm-hmm. consent, things like that. I think it's equally important to be having these conversations with our kids on race and on systems and you know, how we can, especially I think for white kids to be a part of change. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how you feel about that, but I just, I think a lot of white folks are afraid and they don't want to expose kids to um, some of these hard conversations, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously that's a privilege that we have, whereas you yeah. and my friend Shiva don't have that luxury. But um, I just think it's really, it's really important that we not only think about, you know, our trauma and how that's going to affect our children and to want to protect them from going through that. Um, but also to think about, you know, folks, people of color and what they're experiencing too. So I think it's, um, there, there's a group of, of scholars. I I don't work as much in early childhood, um, things, but there are a group of people Mm -hmm. who think, um, radically about, early education. And one of a point that a lot of people within that group make is that um, this, this allegedly protective measure that we put around young kids and deciding what we want them to learn, what is appropriate for them to learn, what things are beyond them, that really it's a, it's a subtle and maybe not that subtle function oftentimes of middle-class whiteness where we are making these decisions that help to preserve whiteness in the way that we want it. And often um, it's ways that later will, will are, are the things that do harm. If I can't understand or if, I, if the adults who love me and are raising me think that at, at four years old, when, when you're just learning, learning things without actually doing much work to learn them, if those, if those adults decide for me that I shouldn't be able to say the word black, I should develop some type of shame around calling someone by out their race. Mm. Then when I'm 30 and I have kids of my own and we're going through these conversations, I'm still uncomfortable with having those conversations. So who's helped in that situation by saying, Oh no, we're, they're too young. They're too precious. We shouldn't put these burdens on them because the burdens don't exist inside of any individual. They exist in the world mm-hmm. and they've been used. Uh, these inequities have been used to organize the world. It's not an accident. Mm-hmm. It's not, um, it's not a random set of things. It's these, all these micro situations like this that, and a lot of times in a lot of cases, they are not 
even things I don't think that we anymore are consciously choosing to do. It's just the way that things have been done. But each of these micro instances contributes to this inequitable system that runs. And so I think it's, I think it's important to, to think about, to start interrogation with, um, with habitual ways of thinking. Like what, what are the things that I think in my life are the most neutral and just really don't matter at all. If I start thinking with those things, sometimes I can find very interesting, um, like the socio history behind some some different things I think about or do without thinking, is are are things that I can change, things that I can that I can think about a little bit more, um, more deeply. My, my sister and I were talking the other day and I kept saying um, something about the homeowner's suite in, mm-hmm. in her house. And she was like, what are you talking about? Oh, and, yeah. and I was like, well, I'm just saying that instead of saying master suite, cause you know, like mm-hmm. slavery. And she was like, oh, racism mm-hmm. strikes again. <laughs> Isn't it incredible when you really think about it? Yeah. yeah. And those, those are some of the things that's like a super innocuous, probably I think of example, but when we just tune our minds to think about what does it mean now if someone else hears me say homeowner suite, this is not an attack on anyone. It's, but it is something that might make you stop and think if you've never exactly. thought about it before. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes, that actually happened to me in the last month. I yeah. had read something about that exact same, um, you know, verbiage and just mm-hmm. that the usage. And I was like, oh, you know, yeah. I'd never thought about that before. But now it really makes sense. And it, and it just goes along with the way that the system has always been intended to work. Yeah. You know, and I know you would probably agree that in the same way of racism is also sexism in our country. It, it's not the system. It's not a broken system that's needing a little tune-up. It's, it's, no. only, it's working how it was meant to be. Absolutely. So I see, and I, I know that you listened to Rashawn's podcast, the last one we put out, about the similarities. I was trying to run by her about mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement. And I see a lot of that um, just continuing to rise up and and – where we're seeing why both education and social justice are so necessary. That's why I respect your work so much because it's hand in hand in order to be able to, you know, from the top down, create change. We have to be a voice on this. I agree. And I, I, one of the things that was really interesting to me from, from y'all's conversation was, um, you're like seeking, I don't know if permission is the word, but just uh, Mm -hmm. uh, another voice, another voice who could tell you I'm on the right path about making those connections. And I I found myself out loud saying like, absolutely. (laughs) Whatever are the points of connection that draw humans together or whatever is the impetus for seeing someone else's perspective, like, I, I don't, I don't know that it's helpful to the conversation to judge those things. I did appreciate um, the the talk about like unless you're trying to co-op someone else's someone else's pain, right. unless you're trying to right. to recenter yourself. Mm-hmm. But if mm-hmm. if the way that you 
that you walk toward shared understanding is by drawing on your own lived experiences or your own passions. I, I can't see how that is, how that is anti-social justice in any way. Hmm. It's really affirming. Thank you for saying that. And, and it is, it's scary to kind of, cause I never want to center my story. Like I'm so thoughtful about that, but in the same way, it is a, is a part of wanting to relate, you know, mm-hmm. like for, probably my entire life, I have been a deep, deep fan of like black feminist thought and mm-hmm. theory. And, you know, I've really taken some time to really go inside myself. And why has that always been so important to me? And why do I feel so drawn? And I do feel like it's been a part of, you know, the seeing my experiences and understanding my experiences, especially in a community of other survivors, mm-hmm. um, I just see how that has happened so much too with Black women. And I love, I love a group of Black women. And I think it's it reminds me of like a group of survivors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's some very different um, way that I don't feel like people talk about. And I, so I've been really exploring that. Um, huh. But yeah, <laughs> I, I have never been besides like um, the take back the night rally or something. Mm-hmm. I have, I've never and there's not as much like communal sharing mm. through through words. There's a lot of emotional sharing sure. in an event like that. But yeah. I have never been in a group exclusively of survivors. I've, yeah. I'm interested about those <laughs> parallels, though, now. Yeah. Well, and obviously that's a lot of my work is, Mm -hmm. is creating that community because you, it helps survivors feel like they're not alone and the experiences that they feel so silenced about, um, and the, and the struggles they feel like they cannot talk about, they can Mm -hmm. talk about in that community because we all have the shared experience. We all have the similar effects of the trauma that is playing out in our lifelong healing journey from yeah. trauma. So it has just reminded me of the what I have read and what mm-hmm. I've gathered from, you know, my female black friends who yeah. who talk about that. You know, they can be different when they're with um, other black women because there's a shared understanding and an um, shared experience. They feel seen in the same way like survivors can feel Mm -hmm. seen with one another. So I love that and just been really thinking about that. So it's really cool to be able to unpack that with you too. What you were just saying about the, the importance of space. um, I using actually a black feminist thought framework. We, we actually ended up writing um, a couple of articles about it, but myself and a couple of colleagues um, and a mentor really did just what you're talking about for black women, created a space where people could just get together and just have some snacks and like sit on a couch, tuck your feet up under you if that's how you sit on a couch and just just talk. And Hmm. I think to your point of um, you can you can say all the things in that space and you'll know that people hear you and you don't have to give all the backstory you don't have to go into every minute detail and for for us part of our experience there was that it's a chance to not talk about those things we don't have to talk about just the typical black woman 
um, conversation starter things. We can talk mm -hmm. about whatever we want because we mm -hmm. already know all that stuff. And mm -hmm. there were so many sentences that people started and everyone else is just like, yeah, <laughs> and, and right. no, one, no one even had to, to finish their, their thoughts because mm -hmm. we were just there together. And uh, so I, I, and it was a powerful, powerful space and experience and something that I, um, I yearn for and continually recreate in my life. Mm. Um, so I can a hundred percent imagine that that is, that is a similarly healing generative, regenerative space for a group of survivors. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. To me too, I find a similarity as you're talking of not wasting time. Like we don't have to go through all of the initial talk. Like yeah. we already know all of that. It's just your story is a little bit different than mine in some ways, but we already have all this other story that's so similar. Yeah. So we don't have to go through all that. Like, exactly. like you said, it's like, yep. I get it. So like, okay, you get it. So I'm moving past that and I'm going to go to this that I don't ever get to really unpack with people. Yeah, <laughs> You know what I mean? So it's like, yes. you're really getting to the meat. <laughs> so <laughs> important. Yeah. That's really cool. Well, thank you for allowing me to process that with you. It's something I think I'm still in process with. Um, but again, just trying to look at both things and, mm -hmm. and how do they relate? And then how can I, and why do, why do I feel so drawn to that? you know, sure. and now I know why. <laughs> so, um, that's so cool. And also I think, you know, talking about not centering my story, not centering, you know, the, the white story, not centering specific, um, as a Christian, um, myself, the life of Jesus has always told me that not centering my story, not centering like the white elite story, right? Mm -hmm. It's been about Jesus life told me that, focusing on spending my time with marginalized people, centering the story on the poor, centering the story on the outcast, the mm. least, the last, the lost, being a voice, being an activist on social justice is important to my life as a follower of Jesus, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and I know that you and your family comes from the Baha'i faith mm -hmm. and I've only recently come to know about that through, mm -hmm. through Shiva. Shiva. And mm -hmm. so, I, it's very interesting to me and very inspiring and beautiful. And I'm wondering how does your Baha'i faith inform your work or impact your work? I think just as much as my racialized experience growing up has, has been solidified into my worldview. So has my, my Baha'i faith. I grew up as a Baha'i, um, it's, it's not, we don't have like baptism in, in the Baha'i faith. You actually are, um, are a Baha'i parent's job is to expose a child to a plethora of religious tradition so that they can make an informed decision once they mm -hmm. are at an age of maturity. Mm -hmm. um, but I certainly, so some of the core values of the Baha'i faith um, are this idea of three onenesses, so that there's a, the, a oneness of God. So it's a monotheistic religion. Also, oneness of religion, which sometimes is, is difficult to understand, but we believe that all religions came from God, that he, had, he has made a, a covenant with us that he will not leave us alone. So he will send us messengers that are in his, in his image 
um, throughout throughout time. And so in that way, all religions are one religion and because they are all God's religion spoken through different voices. Mm-hmm. And then the oneness of mankind, which probably is most directly influential in the work I do today. Okay. Um, but the, the absolute insistence that all, there is only one race, the human race, and that we all are, are blessed beings is, is the way that I approach. And be, if only for that reason, we have to love each other. Mm. If yeah. only for that reason. It doesn't mean that I like every human. It doesn't mean that I'm best <laughs> friends with every person. But <laughs> when you're able to, just in a grocery line, um, to feel human to human love, I think it, it changes the way that you that you think about the world in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, and I took took that for granted as well mm-hmm. because because it's just how I was um, taught to see the world. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and in that way, it really does impact your work because of your lens that you see all humankind through. I mean. Absolutely. And, yeah. I, and it wasn't until um, doing some teaching with my students and I center love in my, um, in my curriculum as I'm teaching people how to be teachers. And I did, it took me a while to realize that my students were not understanding what I meant mm. with that concept. Um, so we, I have to we have to return back to this, um, but there's a lot of um, a lot of scholars that I draw on, especially black female scholars. Marcel Haddix comes to mind immediately. Um, she talks about how radical love, infusing radical love into instruction, is is so necessary, and it's and it's that type of love that um, I I know that you as a child are imbued with gifts and treasures that were just for you and you already have them. You bring them here into the classroom and my job is to, to help them become more visible. Hmm. I'm not trying to give them to you. They're yours. Hmm. And that is the kind of love that, that I want teachers to be showing their students. Um, but I, I did, and I didn't realize that that is like a, a radical way of thinking. <laughs> right. Like, who knew? <laughs> yeah. And just hearing, though, about, you know, your Baha'i faith and just love and equality and all of that, my question for you is, can you still get angry? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Because, like, <laughs> part of me being involved in social justice means me being angry at injustice but I haven't heard that from you yet (laughs) oh yeah I I think um especially after um the last election I was going through all of these emotions of um does does equality mean and does equity really more importantly mean universal acceptance like how how does how do I balance Mm -hmm. and justify um not wanting to be around certain people and not wanting certain certain oh, voices yeah. to have a platform in my classroom, and yeah. uh, my 
kind of mantra that, that came out of that was, I do not have to tolerate intolerance. Hmm. And, and actually Shiva and I had, she, she's, she's changed her perspective a little bit, but I, but in the beginning, just after um, the election, we were having a conversation where I I was mad. Okay. I was Mm -hmm. furious. I was angry. I was sad. I was um, a lot of emotions and she was to your point about her like consummate niceness. She was like, I just, um, I'm just trying to find points of, um, I, I always want to start with finding a point of connection where I can start a conversation. And I'm like, I don't want to connect. I don't yeah. want to connect. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and for me, there was a, there was a difference between, um, Trump voters because I don't get me started on the uselessness of a bipartisan system and the fact that we only have two choices and it's rooted in ignorance is like the real way that our political system can go on. I will not. Well, and we <laughs> only <that> seemingly <laughs> ever have a white male sexist oh, available to us. Like, oh can we God. have other options? Oh, so, okay. But we will There's get that. you started. Go ahead. <laughs> But that, to me, I can very much forgive someone like voting down party lines because like we're just, we're not trained to be smart voters. Um, so fine. But a Trump supporter is a much different thing for me to mm-hmm. think about because True. that means that ostensibly you have looked at your options and um, listened to what he has to say and you endorse it. Mm-hmm. And I, at that time in, in particular, I was like, I, I have to put up barriers um, and boundaries so that I can keep myself safe. I, I a hundred percent believe that God wants yeah. me to love and to love universally. Mm-hmm. But I also don't think that God wants me to be a fool. Mm-hmm. So I may, again, my mantra, I do not have to tolerate intolerance and um, my classrooms, it probably um, made me more, more vocal and more poignant and more intentional in my classroom spaces. Um, And I, I have to grapple from time to time with the fact that that means that some students don't like me. They don't like being in my classroom. They don't like the messages that I have to share. Um, I had a person in my most recent semester um, write in my student evaluations that she was sorry for anyone who had to take my class in the future and that I claim to be all about diversity, but I only care about people who, who think like I, who are, who are just like me is, Mm. is how she phrased it. Mm. And on the one hand, I I have to, um, I, I do mourn the fact that anyone felt that she also had said in the, in the thing that she, um, she just didn't contribute a lot to class because her, her values and worldviews are, are completely different from mine. And she didn't feel like, like I would have heard her out. Mm -hmm. So, um, I have to mourn the fact that there was a student who didn't feel comfortable and seen and heard in my classroom. And that's a growth opportunity for me. I, I don't want that. And on the other hand, I also 
am acknowledging that something I'm doing is, is making, um, making it clear that there are certain things that I, that I, I will push back on. Sure. Because I, I re- when I re- read that comment, what I hear it saying is I have <laughs> white supremacist patriarchal notions about the world that I, <laughs> I wasn't able to, um, to share freely in this classroom. Yeah. And I don't know. Yeah. Well, coming from a family with many people like that, mm-hmm. I think that is a common response to just, you know, it's very closed-minded. So they automatically feel all those things simply because their opinion is not exactly mine. On the other hand, I struggle in settings where I'm the only one that has the same thoughts as me, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and so I would feel shut down and then yeah. my boundaries are up. And if I were to give a secret report on how I felt at a family reunion, I might give the same thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It is. It is. And I, you have to, I say all that to say that I don't have an easy answer about it. Yeah. I think it's, it's something that I continue to think about. Um, and continue to find ways. I don't know how you might feel at, at a family reunion, but if someone was like, okay, I, I, I really want to talk to you about your thoughts. I know they're different from mine, but just mm. say anything and I, I feel the same way. Let's just have an honest dialogue. You might feel yeah. like it's a trap. <laughs> Wow. You know, I, and so I have to do the, the necessary me work to figure out how can I create a space where someone feels honestly invited to, to have a dialogue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in this culture, it's very hard to find a place where you can feel safe enough. Especially when there's also the power dynamics of like, I get, I don't think of it like that. I think of it, grades as things that you earn um, throughout the semester. But at the end of the day, a lot of my students really believe that a grade is what I give them. Hmm. And Interesting. <laughs> Not something to be earned. Yeah. No, it's just uh. whatever I give them. So with that layer added, I know it, it's difficult. It's difficult. Yeah, yeah it is. Well, what would your advice be then to listeners who want to be a part of change, right? They want to be open to this. They want to, they're learning, they're becoming more woke, you know, they want to be a part of change. Would it be education and conversations? Would it be go to school at Penn State, minor in social justice, you know, like what, what would you encourage? I think, I think self-education is so important. Um, I, I know it's the concept has been popularized recently, but um, especially on racial issues. And the same if you think about sexism, Mm -hmm. sexism is not a woman problem. It's a man problem. Mm -hmm. Men are the ones who need to do the education and restructure their themselves in a way that will allow for sexism to to die out. Mm -hmm. And the same for for racism. Racism is not a black people problem. Mm -hmm. It's really a white people problem. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't understand that or understand where it comes from, then education is definitely, definitely necessary there. I also think, um, once you have this, this education, you can't keep it to yourself. Mm -hmm. You have to share it 
have to bring others into, into your fold. And um, most especially in spaces that don't include black people. Yeah. Um, I think that that notion has been, been getting shared again and again. Um, I actually just finished up leading a, a, a book, um, a book club for white fragility. We had actually agreed to do it before, before the end of May. So we were a little bit ahead of the curve, luckily for us, because now it's sold out. (laughs) You couldn't even buy it for a while, but, um, we had a, a kind of, um, there, there were a lot of thoughts about the, the white tears segment of the book mm-hmm. and specifically like asking people to, to not shed their white tears in <laughs> yeah. um, certain spaces. And yeah. we had a really interesting, um, someone, someone asked, in, in the whole group, there were only two, two people of color. Um, and there are about 15 of us all together. And during that conversation, the other person of color asked, um, do you, he was like, I don't know, because I'm never, I can't be in an all white space <laughs> by the function of I'm not white. Mm-hmm. So when y'all are all together, do you cry about huh when you're talking about racism and stuff, because I see it happen all the time when I'm in the room. I see. Does that happen? And Uh it was radio silence. Mm. And finally someone spoke up and said, that is a question I need to take home and talk to myself about. Well, and it kind of comes along with what I was sharing, just even about like my family reunions, like Mm -hmm. in some of those situations and Mary and I, I mean, we've talked about this too. Like it's, it's self-protective to have these viewpoints and this, I have a huge heart for this certain thing, right? Mm-hmm. But if it's not, if my words are not safe in that setting. Mm-hmm. Is it worth it? Yeah. And there have been times when it wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. And I regret that because of what you're saying. Like someone has to say something or nothing will change. Yeah. And but so I- protecting yourself versus protecting my black friends, right? Yeah. And there are, um, just because you didn't do it that time doesn't mean you never can. And I think about just the cyclicalness of strength and, um, and power. I don't feel the same level of strong, the same level of, um, just having the energy at all points of my life. Yeah. If I, if I'm having a, getting over a flu, then I can't, I couldn't mm-hmm. run a, a 3k, even if at the mm-hmm. end of it was my ability to save somebody. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. that was last month, maybe next month. I do have that energy. I can go do that thing. So, and I wouldn't want anyone to, to judge my, um, my allegiance, my alliance based on my sickest day. Yeah. So I, when I hear people, especially white people telling me things like that, like I, I, I feel bad about this time. I didn't speak up or blah, blah, blah. Then I would say your challenge is to um, strengthen yourself in whatever ways make sense to you. Yeah. So that next time you have that extra energy 
and you can spend it because it, you will have to spend some of your energy and privilege to speak up in that way. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. That's very gracious of you. And, and that really speaks to me. That really does. You know, thank you for that. Um, last question. Do you have hope? Do you have hope for our children? I know you're a mother of two black boys, correct? Yes. Yes. You know, do you have hope for that generation or is this going to have to be, in your opinion, a long process? Like, 400 years of oppression means 400 years of flipping the tables. Like, what does right. that look like? I, I have hope. I absolutely have hope. Um, I, I also have fear. Mm-hmm. I also have, um, I have reservations, but I, but there, there is something that feels different about this time. I, I've been hearing other people say that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't, even though I have hope, though, I, I will say that I, in, in some ways, it's hard to imagine what the difference is. Like, I, I don't know if as a mother of two black boys, I will ever get to the point where I feel completely fine with them being outside of my vision and just being about in the world. Mm-hmm. And maybe that, I think there, there is some of that that is just motherhood, but I think that there is a, an additional layer that is specific to black motherhood. Um, and at, at this point in my life, I, I don't know that I can, that I will ever be able to remove those types of thoughts. But my hope is that they they won't carry the fear in the same way that I do. Mm-hmm. I think right now my nine year old for sure is um, he he's aware and he's he's not comfortable around police. Yeah. He's he's not. But but I in some ways I don't want him to be. I want him to be sure. extra alert. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, but I absolutely, I have hope. I, I don't know that, um, I don't, I don't know if it will get a little bit worse before it gets a little bit better. I don't know if you know, I can't put a time stamp on it, but I, I think we will see change. Yeah. Yeah. Slow change. But change. Yeah. And yeah. That's, that's worth still fighting for. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Pockets of change. And I mean, look at Oregon right now at mm. Portland. That it is the, I, it is, it's terrifying and heartbreaking what's going on there. But mm-hmm. what are, what are we up to? 54 days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is, that is something to be, to be said. True. Because <laughs> people true. don't have to be out there. No. Right now. And lines of pregnant women arm in arm getting gassed. Like I I I can't watch that and think that nothing will come of it. Yeah. I, I hope not. Yeah. Wow. Well, this conversation holds so much value actually. So we we're just really grateful for your time and and your research and your experience and your heart and just Really grateful that you've offered it to us today. So thank you. 
Thank you. This is a great way to start off the morning and um, (laughs) I can just feel the energies. If anyone wanted to contact you, would you welcome that? Yeah, yeah. I I am social media impaired. So it's just just my email. It's just apatterson at psu.edu. All right. Well, take care, Ashley. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you both. Have a good one. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, write a review if you heard something you liked, even invite others to listen so we can be on this healing journey together. You can check us out on Facebook or go to IamOneVoice.org.